Well, amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. Tell you what, it's uh, a little later. We will celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and it's pretty amazing when you get to celebrate both ordinances in the same service. Amen? So, um, one is, of course, what we just celebrated with baptism. It's a one-time picture. We don't get baptized every week. We, you will hear stories of people that have, may have been through a, an act of baptism before, but later on were truly converted, were truly born again, and so maybe they just call that getting dunked before. Um, because we live in a religious society, because we live in the South, many times people will walk an aisle, pray a prayer, talk to a pastor or their parent, and then later on come to a, an understanding that they were not truly converted. And so guess what? You know what? We baptize those new believers. Amen? So it's a picture of the gospel that we died to our old life, that just as Christ died, we died with him just as he was buried. We're buried with him, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. But what we're going to celebrate at the end of the service, the other ordinance the Lord gave that here at Cross Point we celebrate once a month together, it's a continual reminder that as we take a wafer and take juice, what is symbolic of? As Christ took bread and wine, it is a picture of his body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. There's nothing magical about what we'll take in today. We don't take in Christ, but we remember what Jesus has done. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are both pictures to bring the gospel always in front of our mind. And here at Cross Point, we exist to glorify God by committing ourselves to God's truth, God's people, and God's mission. And we do that by being driven by the gospel. So in the service today, guess what? Twice as a, as a congregation, we get to have the gospel put before us. That Jesus died for us and he was buried and he rose again and his body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. Is that, if that is not a reality in your life today, if you have not been born again, we pray that as the word of God is shared and as we praise our Father, that you will hear the voice of the Lord and come to him. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going to be in Acts for a few more weeks. Just a couple of introductory statements. Let me tell you where we're kind of headed. So because small groups finished this past week and we're kind of taking a break from the summer, we, we hope that during the summer, you know, you may connect with your small groups or, or meet, or if somebody's got a pool, allow them to serve you with that, right? Pool parties in the summer, great thing. Um, but we're going we're gonna to pause from Acts during the summer, and Justin and I are talking about maybe tackling a, a short Old Testament book and maybe just a couple of individual messages, but we're going to pick back up. But to get to that break, we've got to get through the beginning of Acts chapter 8. That, that's what we're going to be. I'm going to f- um, get almost through chapter 7 today, and then Justin next week is going to handle the fallout the result of Stephen's defense. That's where we are. Now, keep in mind, in the book of Acts, where we are. Chapters 1 through 5 were the beginnings of these arrows. As we remind ourselves in our, in our, our theme of Acts, Jesus went up, the Spirit went down, and the church went out. Now, we've seen the church go out. We've seen the church go out primarily only in Jerusalem. The command in 1.8 what, was to be his witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they've only, through five chapters, been in one of those places. So Luke's got to spend the rest of the book explaining how they were faithful to the call. And what we're seeing in this process is that it's the stories of Philip and Stephen that force the church beyond Jerusalem. So where we are, Stephen, you remember one of the seven, he's been arrested, 
then brought before the council, and as Justin walked us through last week, he is defending himself against four charges. Now let's just do a little recap before we dive in this morning. Here's it is. It'll be on the screen for you. Stephen's brought before the council. That's the Jewish Sanhedrin, primarily made up of Sadducees, some Pharisees. And what they're doing is they are accusing him of speaking against four massive things in Jewish thought. It's interesting that he defends the charge against God, against blasphemy against God first, and then Moses, because really at this time, the practical God of these men was Moses, not God. The charge is he spoke blasphemy against God. He spoke, he spoke blasphemy against Moses. He spoke blasphemy against the law. He spoke blasphemy against the temple. And so what Stephen does in his defense is he spends half of his speech talking about these two God and Moses charges. And this morning, we're going to see how he responds to the law and the temple charge. Just to remind you what some of the things that Justin said last week, this won't be on the screen, but Stephen basically says, I, I didn't blaspheme God, but your fathers did because they rejected the one that God sent. Joseph, he particularly talks about Joseph, how God revealed himself, the God of all glory. If you remember what Justin said, the supreme totality of all that God is, is his glory. It is the radiating expression of the beauty of God, the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God. And they rejected that. And God sent Moses. Stephen was being accused of speaking against Moses, the I guess the father of Judaism, Abraham would probably be the granddaddy. And what they had a problem with with that was is that they had rejected Moses also. And where we kind of left off last week is that Justin told us that Moses had prophesied that one day God's going to send somebody like me to you. Hint, hint, Jesus is coming. And Jesus has come, and what did the council do? They rejected him. The Israelites rejected him. The Jews rejected him. And so what Stephen has to do is he has to address this, this second category of charges against the law and against the temple. Now, you'll see real quick, this is the theme. It'll be on the screen for you. In his defense, as he's literally on trial, he, he probably realizes for his life, and Justin mentioned that last week. I think that's important. Stephen probably knew there was no turning back. So guess what? He was going to say what needed to be said. And this is what he's saying. God's dealings with Israel, this is the history. God has revealed himself. God has shown Israel who he is. How? Through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Justin reminded us last week that Abraham wasn't a true God worshiper. God went and got him in the year of the Chaldeans and brought him out. That's how we get saved, right? We don't come to God saying, hey, we want God. God comes and finds us, amen? It's grace. And he went and found Abraham. He brought him out, and through Abraham, he built up this nation through Isaac and through Jacob. Then God revealed himself through Moses. God's people were in Israel, or were in Egypt in bondage, and for 400 years, they were enslaved, and then God sends someone, and Moses is the one that proclaims, I am sent you. This is God's personal name. So God reveals himself through Moses, and then, as we'll see this morning, right before, uh, as we read the text this morning, God revealed himself through the law. This is, this is how you honor me. This is how you please me, and God... God reveals himself through the tabernacle. We'll get into that this morning. But then the rest of the Old Testament, God revealed himself through the prophets. 
That in every generation, God sent someone. And then there's a 400-year gap of silence from heaven. And at the end of that, guess who God reveals himself to? Jesus, who is called the Christ, who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the track record is, this is how God deals with Israel. He reveals himself. But Stephen is going to tell us this morning even more so that Israel's history with God is, is rejection. Everything that God gives. Nope. Everyone that God sends. Nope. And it's not so much outright rejection, although that does happen. But in a lot of ways, if you look down Israel, it wasn't that they were like protesting against God. They basically wanted God and they wanted their idolatry cake to eat too. So they wanted, now this is very important for our context this morning, they wanted God on their own terms. They wanted a God that they could redefine, whose name was the Lord, who provided all these blessings to them, but they wanted to go be a part of what the nations were doing as well. So we come this morning, and I want us to go back to to verse 35, and just a little overlap, because as we get into these two charges this morning, how he answers the charge against the law and the temple, it's a lengthy, lengthy passage. We'll go through verse 53. Just let's read it together. This Moses, Acts 7, 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the God or the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There is a shift 
in tone and language in this second part of the charge. The Greek is very emphatic, specifically in those last three verses that we read. In the Greek, we call it vocative tense. You. And all of this begins to culminate as he defends himself and then basically flips the script and says, everything that you are accusing me of, you yourself are guilty of. But to do that, he has to bring them where he answers the full amount of charges. So where we started in verse 35 through really about verse 40, he's still kind of continuing on this charge that he's been speaking against Moses. So what I want to do, dealing with the charge against the law and the charge against the temple, I want to kind of bring them together and just kind of let Stephen defend himself. And then I want us to see how he points out their religious hypocrisy and then what he calls them to do. That's where we're headed this morning. Big truth number one. I want you to see Stephen's positive view of the law in the tabernacle. Now, if you go back to, to chapter 6, here was the charge. Chapter 6, verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This was the second part of the charge. Not only is he blaspheming God and Moses, but he's railing against the temple and he's railing against the law and he says that God's gonna come and take away all these things. This is a big deal. So what does Stephen do? In a few places, in what we just read, he just lets them know, I'm not anti-temple, I'm not anti-law, I'm pro-law, and I'm pro-temple. First and foremost, he speaks about the law. If you'll go to verse 38, notice what he says. He just says one sentence. He's talking about Moses. After the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they met God at Mount Sinai, and notice what he says. The angel spoke with him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Here's the sentence. He, that's Moses, received living oracles to give to us. Real simple. The charge against Stephen that he's speaking against the law is so like not stickable, Stephen just refutes it with one sentence. And how does he say it? He says, Moses received living oracles to give to us. If you look in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, they leave Egypt, they continue in the wilderness, they get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, God makes a covenant with them, and then Moses goes on the mountain for 40 days. And what happens during those 40 days is, he receives the law from God. God is giving him the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, because there's a whole lot more that God shows him while he's up top. And so notice what Stephen says in this one sentence, Moses received living oracles to give to us. What does that tell us? First, it tells us that Stephen believed the law was given from God. So who gave the law? God. So Stephen's like, why would you think I'm against the law? The law is good because it came from God. The source of the law is God. Everything of the law is from God. God wrote the law and God gave the law. It's given from God. But notice what he calls the law. And it's interesting here, he actually uses the word oracles, which is pretty cool. It, it means like a, a, a revelation. This Greek word was the same type in Greek thought when they would go to the, the oracle at Delphi and they would inquire on the gods, right? It's pagan philosophy. But you would go to ask God what he said. So, in the Jewish context, 
This Greek word matched perfectly because check this out. It is God telling us what he thinks and what he wants us to do. Aren't you glad our God is a God of grace that he's already given us what he wants from us? That we don't have to go to some oracle and pay some money and do this and do that and go through all these hoops and protocol for God to speak to us. He already has spoken to us, amen? So he calls them oracles. So, so what is Stephen's view of the law? First and foremost, it's given from God, but he also says that it, notice the adjective, he received living oracles to give to us. So how does he view the law? He views the law as living, but implied in that is that it's powerful. It's full of life. The adjective there is that it is alive. And the charge was, oh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth and Stephen and all these dudes, they're here to take away everything. Remember what Justin told us last week? Christianity was not a repudiation of Judaism. It was the fulfillment of it. It was Judaism come full life. That we're not justified by our works or going to the temple. We're justified by faith in the one that God sent, Jesus the Messiah. And he says, Stephen doesn't have a low view of the law. He's like a high view. It's full of life because it came from God and it's powerful. This is the same sort of thought in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. The the word of God is is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword because it just doesn't cut the skin. It goes deeper than the bone and even the marrow because it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. As we hear the word of God, if we read the word of God, if we hear the word God explained or taught and something deeper than our skin and even our heart and even our most inner self cuts us and heals us and helps us and pushes us and exhorts us, you know what that is? It is the spirit of God taking the word of God applying it to your heart. It's awesome. But he says something else that's just, we can miss very simply at the end of verse 38. He received living oracles to give to us. He has a high view of the law because he says God gave it. It's living and powerful because it's for us. Somebody one time complained, I don't hear God speak. I, I don't hear God, God speak. Somebody said, if you'll just take your Bible and read it, you'll hear God speak. If you take your Bible and you read it out loud, you'll hear God speak out loud. Like the whole point of this Bible, yes, it's to study and yes, it's to comprehend, but don't miss the fact you have a Bible because it's for you. It's it's there to help you. It's there to point you to Christ. It's there to point you to salvation. It's there to sanctify you. The reason that it's so long is because it's for you. Man, this is a high view of the law, isn't it? God gave it. It's powerful and living. It's not dead. It's not some, and, and it's there to, Help us. Stephen says, I don't have a negative view of the law. I've got a positive view of the law. But he also talks about the tabernacle. The reason that they were so ticked off at this time was because in Jewish thought, to speak against the temple, the physical building, was to speak against God himself. Because to the Jews, like, this was the mothership. This is it. In Jerusalem, God has put his name forever. If you'll go down to verse 44, he begins to address, takes a little longer, and it's pretty interesting how he does it, but he states his view of the tabernacle, the temple. 
Our fathers had the tent of of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Check this out, same argument. Who gave the law? God. Who gave the tabernacle? Who gave the temple? God. It wasn't our idea to go build God a house. It was God's idea. Just to recap so you understand what's happening. So in the wilderness, when, they're, when they come out of Egypt and they, they go to the promised land, it should have been a lot shorter. They rebelled against God, so you got 40 years there. Just Justin walked around the stage last week, ran into Daniel. You remember that? You know, just 40 years. In the middle of that, the first part of that, they, they built a tabernacle. And it was a portable building. It was magnificent full of gold and fine linen, and they built it, and the Lord, his glory dwelt in that tabernacle. And there'd be times that they'd be camped out for a long time, and then the cloud of the presence, when God would descend on it, it would lift up, and they would move, and then the cloud would stay still several miles later, and they would camp there, and they would just stay there, and that's how they went through the wilderness. When they got to... The promised land, and they inhabited the promised land, what you find in Joshua, and then right after that in Judges, and then in 1 Samuel, that they needed to have a permanent place for this. So it was at a few different places, and then it was resided at Shiloh, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. But when David comes around, as Stephen will go into, David wanted to build God a permanent structure. And the Lord said, you're a man of war, you're a man of blood, you're not going to build it, but my son will your son will build it. So Solomon built the temple. And so Stephen walks through this, and his point is, listen, I don't have a low view of the temple. I have a high view of the temple, first, because it's from God. Second, it's for God's presence. Now, this verse from Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, it tells us why God wanted them to build a tabernacle. This is what it says. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So check this out. In the middle of the camp of Israel, God's people who had been brought out of Egypt because the lamb was slain and there was blood on the wood and they took in the lamb, the lamb was inside of them. As they congregated together and camped around in the heart of the people of Israel was a tabernacle and in the heart of that tabernacle was God's presence. That's some awesome imagery right there. God was literally corporately dwelling in the heart of his people. And God said, do this so that I might be not just on the fringes of your community, but right dab smack in the middle of you. Stephen goes on to say in verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they were dispossessed the nations that God drove out. And so it was until the days of David. The reason for the tabernacle and ultimately the temple was for worship so that there was one place that their minds and hearts were centered on God. And when the Jews get in trouble later on, you know what they're doing? They're building images at Bethel and Dan and high places, and their hearts are distracted, and it's just kind of like worship like you want, anything goes. And Stephen's like, no, man, I'm not speaking against, and it's interesting here that he doesn't talk about the temple. He talks about the original tabernacle, because the temple that the council here in AD 35, AD 40, that, that they're lifting up wasn't the original temple. Solomon built the original temple. It got destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. Over 100 years later, Ezra rebuilt it. 
And then during the Maccabean period, the intertestamental period, it got roughed up a little bit. And so then Herod the Great started rebuilding it in like 20 BC. So this is not like the original. This is like the great like stepchild, brought down glory, de-elevated temple. And what are they doing? It's everything to us. Stephen's trying to tell them, listen, I'm not the one that has the wrong view of the temple because I go back to what God said and for the purpose of which God said it. Positive view. And he does all this so that secondly, this morning, he might confront their religious hypocrisy. You can probably go through all kinds of straw polls and hypocrisy is one of the most revolting sins in people's minds and hearts, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons why the world has so much in trouble or or beef, I should say, not with with maybe Christianity, but with organized Christendom. And and a lot of you have experienced hypocrisy in all kinds of different situations. I used to experience it when I was a substitute teacher at West Jones. Um, Any middle school people in here, like, I just want to give you a high five on the way out. Not students, teachers, okay? Um, Because you know how it is. You get assigned bathroom duty, right? Because in a middle school boy's bathroom, everything happens except people actually going to the bathroom, right? Like I've seen before, like four people like walk in a stall, like just messing with each other, like, dude, stop. So I was sitting there and what I love to do was to watch these human beings called seventh grade boys do everything but the task assigned to them when they walked into the bathroom, right? Some of them would go to the bathroom and then I'd just kind of walk, walk them, watch them walk up and down the halls and naturally what they would do, they'd come out of the bathroom, they'd get a sip of water and then they'd go find some female to walk down the hall with, right? And I would love to yell out, hey, don't touch that dude, he didn't wash his hands. It's a great sociological exercise. You should try it sometime. Because some of those dudes would walk out of there, you know, and want to go hold some girl's hand and probably ask her, hey, do you use sanitizer? Like, dude, what are you talking about? You didn't even wash your hands. Hypocrisy is one of those things in our society so revolting, so almost sometimes there's different levels of hypocrisy, and it's like sometimes it's just comical, but then it gets down to the serious. And this is where the tone really starts changing because in this speech, this defense, he starts pointing the finger. Next week in the passage that Justin speaks, that that verb that we've encountered before, to be sawed in half, this is what they're feeling on the inside, and this is what he (laughs) brings up. What did he confront? If you'll go to verse 38 again. He received living oracles to give to us, but our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Israel's been out of Egypt just a few weeks. And they come to the mountain and Moses goes up to receive the law of God. And the first two commandments say, no other gods before me and don't make a graven image. And while Moses is on the mountain receiving the law, the people get a head start and go ahead and break it down at the bottom of the mountain. This is crazy. We don't know what happened to this guy. 
And Aaron tries to play dumb later on. He's like, Moses is like, what happened? He's like, uh, I don't know. I just threw gold into the fire and this calf just popped out. So comical. And what he's saying here is he's like, listen, he begins to apply it without directly saying it until verse 51. But what he's trying to get them to understand is, check this out. Like their fathers, they broke the very law they claimed to uphold. Now think about the process of the last few chapters. We bring the apostles in and we threaten them. Then we bring the apostles in and we beat them. And now we brought this guy in and guess what we're going to do? Eventually you'll find out later on they're going to kill him. All of that was breaking the law because they couldn't punish them. There wasn't any, they were breaking the law by, by saying, we want to honor the law. It's like when I was a teenager, I would break the law of Joe Johnson many times. Curfew was 1030. If I came in at 1045, if I came in at 1031, I broke the law of Joe Johnson. But there'd be times where my dad, because I'm a sinner and because he's a sinner, my dad would like, I would raise my voice at my dad, and then my dad would come back and raise his voice louder than at me, telling me not to raise my voice while he was raising his voice while telling me not to raise my voice. Which would cause me to raise my voice. And then he would win because I would get grounded or get whooped or whatever, okay? My dad believed in the rod of Proverbs. What these guys are doing, in one hand, they're saying, we uphold the law of God, and Stephen, you are speaking against it. And, and Stephen's like, dude, like this is the track record. Your fathers broke the law, and guess what? All you do is break the law. Just a few years earlier with the crucifixion of Jesus, the sham of a trial that it was, breaking the law. What did the Jews do? They broke the law. What are the leaders doing right now? They're breaking the law. Like your fathers, you break the law you claim to uphold. But this second one, man, this really stings. Like their fathers, they consigned all of God to an idol. This was the track record of Israel. They met a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. When they made that calf, Exodus tells us that they look at that calf and they go, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then later on, they worshiped the stars, verse 42 says. God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Then in verse 43, they worshiped the gods of the nations, the pagan gods, Moloch, which was a god of in Canaan, that you would take your infant child to. And the, the big statue of Moloch was him sitting kind of with his legs crossed. And where his lap was, they would put these, build these ginormous fires in front of this idol. And they would take their newborn children and they would toss them up into the fire as a sacrifice to Moloch. And in those ceremonies, they were, is, we're, we're told in, in history that the drums would be beaten so loud to, to, to overcome the cries of the child that was being burned alive. And he's saying, listen, this is what you did. This is what your fathers did. God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. And what do they do? They start worshiping all the gods of the pagans. But here's where it stings. You called a golden calf God. 
You called the host of heaven, God. You called Moloch and Raphon, which is probably a, uh, a reference to, to the, the god Saturn. But this is what these guys were doing at this point. Check this out. They were calling, not a golden calf, not an, not an idol, not a pagan god. They were calling their own religious system and the temple that they were meeting in their god. Verse 44, our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness. Then verse 45, they brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations, and so it was until the days of David. If you study that period, it's called the Judges. And dude, it, it's, it's, the book of Judges is crazy. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is like crazy story after crazy story after crazy story. It is what happens to you when you swallow the vain promise of idolatry and forsake God. That's what Judges is. Guess what was happening through all that idolatry in the judges period. Guess what was in Shiloh? The tabernacle. Nobody at that point was saying, don't meet on the Sabbath. Nobody was saying, tear down that tent, do away with the sacrificial system. Just like today when we go on Sunday to salute the system and stand and take our place and then the rest of the week act like there is no God. Because we make an event or a building, or a system, our God. This is what the Jews were doing. And that's why later on, if you'll notice in verse 48, he goes, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. What he's saying is, listen, you have so much stock in this temple. You have so much stock in this building because you think by it you have a monopoly on God. You don't because nothing can contain the glory of God, not even a temple. This was expressed in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because we've got a temple, we're good. Now, for us, we may look at a building like this and be like, no, we meet here because we have to, or we meet here, or this church meets here, this, no, it, Check this out. I'm not saying you put your trust in it. What I'm saying is you segment, quote, your faith to a one-hour event or, in our case, maybe a one-hour and 40 event because the preaching's long. Okay, I get it. It was a joke. You can laugh. We know. You segment your Jesus to a one-time event a week, and then that belief in Jesus has absolutely no dictate on your life the rest of the week, and that's called idolatry. Let me just tell you this morning, Jesus came to set you free from that because he said, I came to give you life. Not a, not a day, not an event, not a sticker to stick on your backpack, not, a, not an, a, a scratch for your spiritual itch, not something just to plug on your life that now I've got faith. Jesus came to change your life that he would actually not become something in your life, he would become your life itself. That's the glory of the gospel. It frees us from consigning God to an object. I think I've told you this before, but the reason why God hates idolatry so much is that 
the uncreated God who is all sufficient in himself, who has everything. We turn from that God and we go to a created thing and we say, I can find in this created thing something that I cannot find in you. That's why God detests idolatry. And Stephen nails them on it. He hits them in one more way in this religious hypocrisy. He says, like their fathers, they rejected God's messenger. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They rejected the law. They rejected the purpose of the the temple. It's not to be worshiped. It's there to help us worship God, to set our minds on God. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to worship God. But like everybody else in the history, guess what? They rejected God's messenger, the ultimate messenger of God, Christ. Now, think about how this relates to the, the law and the tabernacle. I got excited when I thought about this. Stephen, you're talking against the law. Stephen, you don't like the law. Stephen, you hate the law. Stephen, you want to do away with the law. And Stephen's like, no, y'all don't realize? Somebody came down from heaven and embraced the law and kept the law perfectly at every minute point, at every major point, and displayed for you what it really means to keep the law. And guess what you did to him? You killed him. That's, that's wild. I I honor the law, Stephen says, but I am telling you about the one who kept the law. Stephen doesn't like the the temple. He doesn't like the tabernacle. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like this. He wants to do away with it. No, man, man, let me me tell you that the word became flesh, same, same, same word here, and tabernacled among us. Like God took on flesh and he lived in front of you and you despised him and you, you, you pestered him and you questioned him and you fought against him and you killed him. You're just like your fathers because you reject everything that God sends, including God himself, you've rejected. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. Jesus is the best and true tabernacle. Now I need to apply this before we move towards a conclusion. And I was just thinking about just obvious cultural hypocrisies that we are walking through. I want to be like Stephen. I want to be sensitive. At the same time, I want to be honest. I kind of want to start big and kind of zoom in. So let me apply this in some ways. In the last few weeks, with the leak of a possible impending decision of the Supreme Court, the court decision that would basically reverse an earlier decision of the court involving Roe versus Wade. We have two voices in our culture. And by the way, before I get into this, this isn't political, okay? All right? Let me just, we, we, hear, we hear one group saying, trust the science, and at the very same time, trust the science means that's not a child in a womb. That's hypocrisy, How are you to tell me that that's not a human? You're not standing up for the rights of women. You're destroying the rights of unborn women. I guess it's really personal to me because I could have been one, an aborted child. Seems as if those in our culture 
would rightly so, as I was thinking about, what's the most vile thing that's happened in the last 300 years on this continent or in our hemisphere? It would have to be the African-American slave trade. It would have to be the Holocaust. Because in both of those situations, guess what? Society and culture embraced a worldview that lowered the value upon people, the image of God upon people, and brought it down and said, you are less than human, therefore we can own you, or you that are less than human, we can kill you. That's what we're seeing right now in our society. That's what we've been seeing for the last 50 years, is that that child in that womb is less than human. It's a great book, just a little advertisement. I had to read this in school. If you're wanting to read like how all this affects cultural issues, I wanna recommend a book for you real quick. Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Like I'll, text me later, I'll send it to you. It is phenomenal, okay? I'm equipping pastor, I'm supposed to help you out. There we go. It's, it's, it's amazing. Because when we ignore the body that God has given us, guess what? We get into cultural chaos, Hypocrisy. Let's move a little closer in. There's another issue. Quote, Christians that would deny the unique person and exclusive work of Jesus. I believe in Jesus and I believe he's special, but it's really mean for us or intolerant for us or wrong of us to say that he's the only way to God. He said he was the only way to God. But yet, we're pushed in that way. Truth by definition excludes. You're not being hateful. You're being loving because you're telling other people that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's destruction. We gotta be true to what Jesus said. This one, let me just get a little closer in. It's when the church calls out sexual perversion and sexual sin, but only in the LGBTQ community and only with issues relating to transgenderism, while at the same time ignoring the rampant sexual immorality, fornication, divorce, and heterosexual sin within the church. So you're throwing Molotov cocktails at a group of people and saying, that's wrong, and yet you're hiding and overlooking and sweeping under the carpet the junk in our own closet. No wonder the world laughs at us and calls us hypocrites. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to lovingly help your neighbor get the splinter out of theirs. And what I'm saying is, Stephen spoke to me this week. He put his finger on my life, places in my life that I want to ignore while getting mad at everyone else with issues in their life. I don't want to be like the Jews. I don't want to, I don't want to say, I believe the word of God while I actively disobey it all week long. I don't want to say I value the presence of God and yet reject the very, the, the, the pleadings and the, the, the movement and the voice of the very presence of God, the Spirit in my own life. You see this? This isn't just like Acts 7, this happened a long time ago. Some dude's defending his life like this is now, really now. Honor the word. Embrace the presence of God. Finally, we move to these pretty quick because they're pretty obvious. Stephen's call to repentance. Verses 51 through 53 is the first time in the defense that he has not associated himself with this. Justin told us last week, hey, brothers, hey, brothers, hey, brothers, brother, brother, brother. It's like Hulk Hogan talking, right? Like brother, brother, brother. Brother, 
this brother, that brother, your brothers, brothers, I'm with you, I'm with you. Here, there's no mention of this. He draws a line in the sand and he says, listen, something is happening right now that I am not a part of. You are a part of it. And as Justin said last week, I think at this point, Stephen knows it's over, man. He knows what's about to happen. This is really like the third strike, right? They brought him in one time and slapped him on the wrist. They brought him in the second time and whipped him. Now this Hellenistic Jew named Stephen, who isn't an apostle, guess what? Yeah, it's probably over. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. What is he telling them to do? He's telling them to turn from pride and stubbornness. That's what he means by being stiff-necked. What does it mean to be stiff-necked? It literally means the neck is stiff. The neck will not bow. The neck will not submit. The neck will not lower itself. It's a picture of somebody who is prideful and continuing in their way. They refuse to change any part about themselves. And Stephen goes, you're stiff-necked. He tells them also to turn from their refusal to listen uncircumcised in heart and ears. This was the equivalent of insulting a Jew, much less a Jewish rabbi. This was the height of it. You're just like a Gentile. Yeah, you're circumcised in your body, but in your ears, you're callous. In your heart, you're callous. You refuse to hear from God. Your fathers persecuted the prophets, And they killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one. You betrayed the righteous one. You murdered the righteous one. You have the law delivered by angels, but you didn't keep it. Turn from your sin against God. Stephen says, listen, what your fathers did was really bad, but what you've done is far worse because you rejected Moses and or your fathers rejected Moses and your fathers rejected the prophets and your fathers rejected the law, but you murdered the Messiah. Feel the weight of that. So he pleads with them. And I believe he does so. He pleads with them in such a way, just as what we find in the the apostolic witness in the book of Acts, he calls them out on their sin and he pleads with them to repent. Don't be like you were with Christ. Don't be like your fathers were with the prophets. But as we'll find out next week, y'all, they did the exact same thing. He closes this part of the defense with a quote from Isaiah 66, verse one, and he stops mid-sentence. And I'm not sure if when Justin picks up the story next week, if he was going to continue, if Stephen was going to continue, but they get so mad in the middle of this verse that they don't let him finish the verse. You know what the second part of this verse says? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know what Stephen's saying? The answer? The answer? The answer to getting rid of hypocrisy, the answer to repentance, the answer to sin is to believe, not just the word, but to believe the one that God has sent. I'll tell you this morning, that coming to church on a Sunday and feeling good about your spiritual life just because you pop in once a week, that's not Christianity. And just 
patching Jesus on your life, that's, that's not Christianity. And that can never save you from your sin. But the Bible says that God revealed himself through the patriarchs and through the prophets and through the law, but ultimately God came down and lived among us in Jesus. And Jesus did the things that no one else would do. Jesus touched the lepers and Jesus embraced the prostitutes and Jesus called out the self-righteous because Jesus was showing us the heart of God. And this is the heart of God that desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And this morning, you can trade in your spiritual hypocrisy for salvation that only comes through Jesus, that will forgive you of your sin, that will take away your shame, that, but that will transform you from the inside because Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died in our place for our sin, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended, and now he rules and reigns as Lord of all. This is the gospel. Stephen ruffling these dudes? Yeah. But even in the midst of him getting really pointed, really passionate, you know what it is? It is the divine love of God expressed, pleading with people to not continue in their sin. So this morning, we learned from Stephen, we can be bold. Truth matters. Turn from our hypocrisy. I'm so thankful Jesus saves hypocrites. Some of you, like me, you used to be a hypocrite come to church on Sunday and live like hell during the week. But never in public, right? Only in private because you had a spiritual image to save, right? Jesus saves hypocrites. I'm so thankful. If you're far from grace and far from God this morning, it may be deep in religion, can I just encourage you? Jesus saves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. Thank you for Stephen's witness and his defense. Thank you for, Lord, that you love us, that you call us out on our hypocrisy, that you call us out because you have something better for us. You have reality and truth, the presence of God, the life of God. So Lord, I pray you would put your finger on our lives today, areas of our life where there's hypocrisy, Lord, for those in this place that don't know you, that have never been born again to a living hope, I pray that you would work in their life, call them, draw them, that they may believe in what Jesus has done. Church, let's just pause before the Lord for just a few seconds. Thank him for Jesus. Thank him for his truth, for his love that he would reveal to us himself his faithfulness to be patient with us in our unfaithfulness. Perhaps you need to talk to the Lord about something in your life. Let's just pause for just a moment. Speak to the Lord. Deal with those things. Let's pray.